Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. The first interview is with freelance writer and game designer Matt Forbeck. His work is too long and detailed to list here, but is only a Google search away. We talk about his journey into full-time freelance work at an early age, as well as his work and friendship with many of the old guard of TSR. We also hear how a crazy, impetuous leap made in his youth paid off. His experiences and advice are still applicable to those wanting a freelance career today. The second part is an off-the-cuff discussion with Morgan Grover, whom I interviewed in Episode 7. Here, Morgan extols his love for Shadow of the Demon Lord. Meanwhile, I grind my axe regarding that my normal dislike of high fantasy is fueled by my hate of bad adventure design in Descent into Advernus. Morgan explains how he fixed those shortcomings in the game that he runs, plus he also explains why Shadow of the Demon Lord is a perfect system to run the Curse of Strahd. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Matt. Hello, Jeff. Uh, you have quite a long uh, history as far as, as being a writer. Um, you've written um, a number of works from uh, stuff that's been self-published to large name publishers, but also in the, um, as well as in the RPG industry. Um, if you would, because um, I think there's a lot of people who maybe are looking to maybe get into um, becoming an, a writer, an author, and look at maybe the steps to take, or, and I realize not all steps are the same, but it, maybe we could just go through your history a little bit. <clears throat> sure. So, and I, I think especially aiming at the gaming industry, but we'll also talk about your other work. So, so how did you get started writing for games or for the gaming industry? Uh, well, I started out when I was pretty young. Actually, I hit my first Gen Con uh, when I was, I think it was the summer I turned 14 years old. Uh, just between like eighth grade and freshman year in high school. And so it was Gen Con 15, I believe. And actually I've been going to conventions here in Southern Wisconsin where I grew up uh, from before that. I met Gary Gygax at my first convention I went to, which was a winter fantasy in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And I ended up playing a game of Boot Hill with a guy named Steve Winter, who has gone on to do many amazing things. I mean, he was doing amazing things back then, but um, uh, Steve's actually ended up editing some of my novels and being part of a writer's group with me when I was in my 20s and 30s. So uh, so I started out pretty young. I ended up going to Gen Con. When I was uh, 16 years old, I started a, uh, what would now be called a fanzine. Back then, we just thought it was a magazine. It was just cheap pieces of paper that I had printed at a local printer here uh, and had my own booth at Gen Con that summer. And uh, it washed out. I lost every dollar. It was terrible, whatever. But it was probably the best tuition money I ever spent, right? And I went off to college and uh, one of the guys I had met doing this stuff was a guy named Troy Denning. Uh, and Troy was one of the developers of all sorts of TSR stuff back in the day, including Dark Sun, which we did with Tim Brown and, and other such stuff. And Tim, uh, Troy and his buddy, uh, Steve Sullivan, had started a company called Pace Setter Games in Delavan, Wisconsin. Yeah. And they, oh, yeah. Did game, yeah, they did lots of great games. They did games like uh, um, The Sandman. Uh, the uh, Time Ace, uh, Star Chill, Ace, oh, Star, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, they did Time Master, Star Ace, Chill, Wabbit's Revenge, Wabbit's Wampage, which were board games. Um, a lot of great stuff, right? And so what I, they invited me to play test it with them. So I would actually drive up after soccer practice in high school from my little town, Beloit, Wisconsin, to Delavan and then play test games with them once a week. And we did that for a good chunk of a year. 
so when I went off to college, uh, Troy said, hey, you should get in touch with this friend of mine. You're going to the University of Michigan. I know this guy, Will Niebling, who was the uh, biggest Michigan fan you're ever going to know. Will was actually the first uh, first vice president of sales at TSR, actually. And so at this point, he had left TSR and was doing independent sales stuff for different gaming companies like uh, Mayfair Games and Coplow and Grenadier Models and Iron Crown Enterprises, a lot of these classic companies. And uh, Will hired me to do inventory for him at a place called Greenfield Hobby Distributors out in uh, Livonia, Michigan, right, which is the suburb of Detroit. So I would drive out there, I'd do inventory. And, you know, we, this is back in the days before internet. So uh, we would fax stuff back and forth or even have to do it by phone. And then Will would start taking me out to these different conventions. And as I'm standing in the, uh, at the convention hall, you know, in the booths of these manufacturers, I would say, hey, you got some writing there. I like writing, you know, I can do writing. Um, and eventually I got hired to do some editing and I started out doing editing for a number of different companies and I started out doing writing and game design. Uh, so well, I guess just, just pause for a second. Sure. So you were at this young age, were able to talk yourself or, to sell yourself as being an editor. So who, so who were you doing the editing for? Well, I did. I started out. My first gig was actually writing the rules for Myth Fortunes, which was a game that Will and a guy named John Danovich, who had also been with TSR at the time, had designed for Mayfair Games, and it was based upon Robert Lynn Ashburn's funny fantasy. Design. Yeah, I uh, had Phil Folio artwork. It looked great. They designed the game but couldn't write the rules, so they hired me to write the rules for them. That was my first professional gig. Uh, then I, uh, I oh, went so how. If you could, so what's now this is kind of interesting to me so there's writing the game and writing the rules well it's I, not I guess writing the game. designing the game and writing the rules are two separate skills right and some of us have both those skills and some game designers only know how to design a game and then they can explain it to their buddy but when it comes down to actually coming up with a sequence of play and making the rules clear and everything uh, else, that's a whole right. separate thing in fact mattel has hired me in some cases to write the rule books for them for various games right and the reason they do that is because they know I have that skill set and they're game designers that they have, uh, it, whether or not they have that skill set, they want a fresh set of eyes on it, right? They want somebody who's not been immersed in the game the entire time right. to come in and say, okay, this is what we need to know how to play. Because when you've been playing a game forever, you start to skip over stuff, right? And if, you, oh, yeah. if you're the creator of the game, hell, I mean, I've done this myself a lot of times where you go, God, which rule was it that I finished up with and how do I explain, you know? <laughs> I've already explained this one. Now I'm just explaining the revision of this one and the revision of the revision of this one. And so you're so deep into it, you don't really know where you are anymore. And it's it's good to have a fresh set of eyes come in and say, okay, this is what I, as an intelligent, experienced game player, need to know to be able to play this game, right? And to explain it to other people that I'm going to teach to play teach to play with me. Um, and the game designer at that point, they know they got a great system. They know it works. But explaining that to the newbie, which they are so far from from being at that point, right, becomes a, a different set of skills for them. So, and I learned doing that by uh, going to seminars at the Gamma Trade Show, uh, Game Manufacturers of America Trade Show that used to hold in Las Vegas and then all over the place for a while, back in Las Vegas now Reno. Uh, but I ended up uh, going to seminars with uh, Mike Gray from Hasbro, uh, who used to be with TSR again. A lot of TSR connections. Uh, but Mike would do seminars on how to write a rule book. And I sat there, took notes, learned everything I could. Mostly I was willing to teach myself these things, right? Uh, when I was in college uh, working for Will, that's when uh, Gary Gygax started a new company called New Infinities, which did this terrible game called Cyborg Commando, amongst other things, right? 
And uh, they also had a novels line and their, their head, the guy running the company at the time, the CEO or president, whatever his title was, was Don Turnbull. And Don had been the head of TSR UK for many years and Gary had hired him to help him run uh, New Infinities. And they needed an editor for their fiction line. So, and I had never done this before, but apparently they were desperate and foolish enough to hire some 20 year old kid uh, or 19, I may have been at the time. Um, no, just 20. And uh, I went to Don's place in Lake Geneva and he handed me an editing test. And said, well, how'd you get up. to this point? So, I mean, so I, so how in the world did you, did you go from being, hey, kid on the street doing some stuff to somebody says, hey, come to my house and I got a job for you? Well, again, Don was a guy I had met while I was doing the trade shows with Will, right? And I had met, and actually, you know, you want to even go back. Will was at the, I met Will at the first Gen Con I went to. We played Dawn Patrol. I came in second in the tournament. And they do, Dawn Patrol was a fight in the skies tournament they do on Sunday morning oh, yeah. Gen Con every year. And me not knowing, I just had a copy of the game. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to show up and play the game. And I ended up meeting two guys at that, at that actual game. It was Martin Stever and Will Neeling, who I've now known for, Christ, almost 40 years, I guess 38 years or so. And uh, Marty Stever, went in, he ended up going to Michigan as well, a couple of years ahead of me, and tried to get me to rush his frat that he had started, which was a gaming frat, believe it or not. And, uh, and Will was uh, kind of his mentor, and then he mentored me as well. And, you know, if I hadn't, uh, but Troy was the guy who made the connection between us because I was playtesting games with Troy when I was in my, uh, when I was about 16, 17 years old. Um, but, you know, Will introduced me to Don. Don, uh, yeah, we, you know, I'd gone out to dinner with these guys, I'd, you know, and had beers with them, even though I was a little young to be having beers when I was first knowing them. <laughs> uh, didn't stop anybody in Wisconsin those days. I'm not going to really uh, lay that there at their feet. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Don was living in Lake Geneva and they said, come over here and take the test. And I, he just handed me this thing and said, mark it up. And I did. I'm like, doot, 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 doot. And I handed it back to him. He says, excellent job. You even know the difference between lesser and fewer. Great. You've got the, the job. So uh, sent me on my merry way. I ended up editing three novels for New Infinities. Uh, and it was copy editing. It wasn't like, uh, you know, this is because even in novels, you have different types of editors. You have the acquiring right. editor who buys it and figures it out whatever and then you have sometimes a developmental editor who will come in and say well i like this part but this part here needs work uh then you can have uh, a, a copy editor will go through and make sure everything is good and then often you even have a proofreader will come in and do a second type of a copy edit and say okay now we know this is exactly what you want to say but let's make sure there are no mistakes in here right like you know misspellings or, or drop punctuation or a line suddenly fell off the page or whatever so, and you need to have fresh eyes at all those stages. So they hire in these different people to do it, at least in, you know, top line professional type pro publishing, right? When you're doing- So did you, did you have anything that, you, Go ahead. that you've written to, to demonstrate at this point? I mean, beyond, I mean, is there- Yeah, I had a terrible no uh, novel I wrote in college because I have a creative writing degree. Um, and uh, uh, fortunately, I think nobody outside of my direct family and my instructors has ever actually seen it. It was absolutely awful. Uh, and I did not show that to any of these people. So, um, so, so is it just based on you talking to people? I mean, there's, was there nothing that as far as, I mean, is, is well, that, I mean, I had a creative writing degree. I mean, I also had the magazine that I published two issues of when I was in high school. Right. So I suppose some of them might've seen that. Um, part of what I tell people though, is it's not just like going in and bullshitting people uh, and saying, look, I'm, I'm damn sharp and you should trust me. Um, I had been working at booths with these people at conventions for a few years at this point, like a couple of years. So part of that is going and saying, 
uh, I'm a trustworthy and reliable person. If you set okay. me to a task, I can accomplish this. I don't say, fuck off, I'm too busy. I don't say, oh, I don't feel like it. I say, what do you need me to do? And if you say, do this, I say, how do I do that? Or if I need explanations, you teach me. And then I go and do it. And I show myself to be a competent and trustworthy person. One of the things in gaming, for instance, when you start out is they'll often start you out with like, uh, let's have you write a small article, say 500 words, right, or an entry. And if you do well with that, maybe we'll move you up to, uh, a mo you know, maybe we'll do a monster or whatever. Then we'll move up to a small adventure or just an encounter or two. Then we'll move up to a full adventure. Then we'll move up to a book. Because the real problem that editors have is they, and people are buying the stuff from you or hiring you, is that they want to know they're not wasting their damn time, right? Because if they hire you and you blow the assignment, not only do they uh, have to go out and find somebody else, but that period of time they were trusting you to do this is gone, right? right? So uh, instead of, you know, let's say they gave you a month to do this project and uh, now a smart editor will actually give themselves two months if they give you a month for the real deadline, right? But if they give you a project and they tell you to have it done in a month and you blow the deadline, then they have to figure out whether or not there was something extra, you know, uh, something crazy happened in your life and you, maybe they need to give you another chance or need to cut bait and find somebody else to do it. Either way, they're scrambling and, and worried. So your job as a writer is to make your editor's life as simple and easy as possible, right? They've got enough stress going on. They don't need you to be another one of their problems. Right. You're supposed to be providing solutions. So if like, for instance, I remember running a game, running games for Iron Crown Enterprises at their booth, right? And one time they're like, oh, you need to go out there and uh, teach people how to play Middle Earth. I'm like, well, yeah, but I've never played Middle Earth before. They're like, ah, don't worry about it. Do it. <laughs> you get it down fine. You know, you know, probably one person there knows a little bit. You can ask them questions. <laughs> you know what? And I went out there and I'm like, guys, I don't know what I'm doing that much, but we have the rules here. I'm going to try to explain them as we go. And it worked fine. Right. And by the end of the session, I knew how to play it. I could keep doing it. Um, so part of it is, uh, is being willing to just jump in and do the best you can and also and, and be trustworthy and, and responsible with what you're being told to do or asked to do right um like for instance i i, I got a job at games workshop when i was fresh out of college which is a whole nother story but i uh so i went to uh i went to work for will and i was doing this freelancing when i was in college and then when i got out of college i, got, I graduated from the university of michigan in three years and i wanted to go visit a friend of mine in spain who had been a exchange student when I was in high school. And, but Spain didn't have a student work exchange program. And I qualified for that still. And I, I didn't have enough money to travel to Europe on my own. So I, uh, uh, the closest country to Spain of which I spoke the language was the UK. So I got a, uh, a British passport, a student worker visa passport, or student worker visa to go with my passport. Uh, flew off to England. My dad bought me a one-way ticket as my graduation present. My mom bought me some luggage. Flew off to England with all of, all my money I had in the world in my pocket, which was $600. Showed up in London, <clears throat> rang at Games Workshop on the phone and said, because this is all pre-email, <laughs> and said, hey, guys, uh, I saw an advertisement in White Dwarf six months ago, and I applied for it, and you guys told me by mail. You guys sent me back a nice letter saying you couldn't hire me because I didn't have a visa because I'm an American. It's like, well, I'm in, I'm in England right now and I have a visa. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, can you come in for an interview? I said, sure. And they, this is a Wednesday and they uh, told me, can you come in on a, I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday. And they said, can you come in on Monday? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I quickly realized after staying one night at a hostel, you know, uh, 
basically bicycle chaining my my belongings to to the uh, bunk that I was staying in. Uh, that I was running out of money already, and I needed to yeah. live quickly. Yes. So I go most, one of the most expensive places to live, right? And it, so they're like, "Yeah, sure, come on in." So I go there. I go up to the Games Workshop Design Studio in Nottingham in a suit because I my mother did job placement, trained me that she always go to a job interview in a suit, and they all laughed at me, right? Because nobody in gaming wears suits, right? And it, maybe if they're on a trade show, and uh, you know, most guys are in t-shirts, shorts, and they're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and they're uh, and you know they're wiping paint brushes under under jean legs and stuff like that. <clears throat> and uh, they give me the tour of the studio. They say, uh, and here's an editing test for you. They go, of course you know proper British editing marks. And I'm like, fuck, I don't know. Editing <laughs> of <marks."> course, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course I do. I know, yeah, I, I know the American ones though. They're a little different. Might take me some time to get up to speed. So. Uh, they send me away with the editing test, tell me to come back on Monday. So first thing I do is I go into, to, back to London, go to the uh, a bookstore. So pick a did they know that you were kind of in a in a corner? Oh, yeah, shit. I mean, well, if I don't do this, I, if I don't do this, I'm going to, uh, I didn't know anybody in the entire country. In fact, the only person <laughs> in the entire hemisphere I knew was this one kid in Spain, right? which is not helping at all. No. Uh, so I, I, uh, so the only person I actually had any kind of contact with was, was my dad's best friend's boss's daughter lived in Oxford and by some crazy chain had communicated to me that if I needed a couch to sleep on for two weeks in, in a place that she and her husband had uh, while I looked for a bartending job, I could do that. So if this didn't work out, I was just going to go, yeah, I didn't care. I was, you know, this was kind of like taking my dream shot. If it didn't work, yeah. I was just going to go bartend or, you know, work at a, whatever I could find, work in a store or whatever. So, if you can't afford the ticket back, you could just work on being deported. No, exactly. Well, yeah, all I had to do was piss <laughs> off somebody badly enough. Yeah. I had a free trip. I'm turning myself in, Kappas. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, so I go back to uh, my hostel. I, uh, uh, grab, I go to Piccadilly Circus to a bookstore, buy a Queen's English Dictionary, which has editing marks in the back of it. Teach myself the editing marks. Go and mark up the manuscript. Show up on Monday with everything I own in two duffel bags on my back and explain to them that if they don't give me a job today, I have to go over to Oxford to, uh, to my dad's best friend's boss's daughter's place. <laughs> and they hired me, right? I can't believe really. I find out years later, there were two other people interviewing for the job and I got hired over them. And uh, my boss at the time was Simon Forrest, who lived in Sherwood Forest, um, let me stay at his flat for a week until I could find a place to live, right? And I ended up, uh, there was another guy I'd been hired in a couple of weeks before me who had, had his flat burgled, he had been robbed, right? And uh, I looked at him and said, you know, how about we be roommates? Because I couldn't find a decent place to live for just one person, right? They're all like one bedrooms in, uh, Right. house and just didn't seem secure or whatever. Uh, so Bill and I ended up living together. It, uh, it's Bill King, William King, who's uh, the guy who did uh, Gotrix and Felix and tons of other Warhammer novels. He writes uh, World of Warcraft novels nowadays too. And he's one of my best friends of life. We ended up living together for six months and uh, he came out to my wedding when I got married in the States. I went out to his wedding when he got married in the Czech Republic. And you know, we're just still to this day, great friends. Miss him dearly. So it may be part of it is, I mean, that you obviously had the moxie to, to do all this. Yeah, that's like crazy uh, unearned confidence, yes. 
And I think the other thing is, I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of that narrative? Yeah, well, it's kind of fun, right? You know, um, I remember on my farewell pub crawl, because I had made tons of, part of it is I'm a friendly guy and I make friends fairly easily, but uh, part of that is also being a person of integrity and honesty and, and trying to deliver what I say I'm going to do. Um, so on my farewell pub crawl, which lasted two whole pubs, because um, what happened is I went to the first pub, uh, I invited everybody in the studio. So like 50 people showed up and I bought everybody the first round, right? And there were cheap beers, fortunately, but then everybody wanted to buy me a round, which meant I was very drunk at the end of the night. And we went to Yield Trip to Jerusalem, which is theoretically the oldest pub in England, where the knights would stop for one last drink before they ran off to the Crusades. And it's literally a hole in a wall, a cave in the cliff underneath Nottingham Castle, right? And uh, so we went and had the pub crawl and we stagger out at uh, just about bar time to go to the next place, which is a little after hours place. And as we do it, there's actually literally a, uh, a lunar eclipse going on. And there's a blood red moon hanging over Nottingham over the bar that we're heading to, right? Oh, yeah. And so we get out of there. We uh, uh, go to that place, drink more there, get out of there, go to a chip, uh, my favorite chip shop, my chippy, uh, where I got fish and chips just about every like five times a week while I was working there because I walked past it from my place where I was living with Bill in the studio. And I walked in with a copy of Space Hulk that had been left out for me to take because um, they weren't allowed to give me things, but they could leave things that would just disappear. Uh, I had a copy of Space Hulk with me because I had edited two expansions for Space Hulk when I was there. I did work on Deathwing and Gene Steeler. And, uh, and the guy behind the counter says, what is going on? Why are you with all your friends? Where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm leaving the country. I'm you know, heading home. And he says, oh my God. And, I, and we started talking and he says his daughter's going to the States to study someplace. I'm like, you know, hey, you know what? I got this copy of this game. I don't want to lug this around. Would you like a copy of this for your son? He goes, oh my God, you know, thank you. How much is this worth? I don't know. Free food for you and all your friends. We're buying the dinner for you. you know? um, and it was a great night. And as we're walking away, uh, Nigel Stillman, who's one of the developers of Warhammer 40K, turns to me and says, you know, Matt, you know what you've got? You've got charm. <laughs> like okay, <laughs> Nigel, you nailed it. We're uh, we're going back to my place to teach you how to drink tequila. We'll figure this out. So, yeah. But it, it was just a it's a fun thing to do, and you know I, I've always been game to be involved in stuff, whether or not it seemed like a brilliant idea at the time. But again, you know, teaching people that they can trust you, that you're a good person, that they like to be around. Also, having people like to be around you in an office setting is a huge advantage, right? Right. Because if uh, that's one of the big things with job interviews. It's not, you know, they can often find somebody who can do the job, but do they want to sit in the same room with you for, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And that, now obviously you should hire people who can do the best job, but you also have to be, if you have a choice at that point, you should also hire people that you can stand to be with, right? Because if they're a pain in the ass the entire time, then it's going to just make you miserable. Going back again to making your editor's job as easy as possible. You want to make your coworkers' lives as pleasant as possible while you're there. Now I'm saying this because I haven't worked in an office for 30 years, but there you go. <laughs> well, I think also with the, uh, I think also in the industry, it sounds like also people tend to move around. So those people that you're friendly with and produce good work, they'll go on to do other jobs yep. and they'll remember other companies and recommend you for that. I mean, so I think there's a certain amount of, you know, people kind of, you know, circulate around and it's, it's really best long-term even not just short-term to just actually be a decent person oh, it is. and a likable if person. If you're one of these vicious people who's a ladder climber who's trying to get ahead and you're willing to stab people in the back, 
that generally doesn't work. All right. People talk to each other. They know who the assholes are. Right. Right. Um, whereas at my, I've been doing this long enough, my age that, uh, I have not actually had to go out and look for work for, uh, I can't even tell you how long people just literally call me up out of nowhere. Often people I don't even know. Right. But, um, like for instance, uh, geez, I mean, I can tell you a dozen stories about how a job just showed up and I'm like, who told you I would be interested in this, you know? Mm. And they're like, oh yeah, this guy, you know, he recommended you because blah, blah, blah. Like I was writing, uh, I wrote the junior novel for Rogue One, for Star Wars Rogue One, right? And I'm like, I got an email from the editor out of the blue and I'm like, um, she's like, well, you worked for Ed Schlesinger on a Guild Wars novel back when I was an editor in the same office with him. Now I'm at Lucasfilm. Um, and uh, we know that you've written science fiction stuff because you've been writing Halo novels for another editor. And you've written uh, young adult stuff or chapter books for kids over at Wizards of the Coast. And honestly, the number of people who can write uh, military science fiction and chapter books, that's not a large cross in the Venn diagram, right? Those two circles don't right. overlap very much. And to know that you're a person that can actually turn the stuff in and is easy to work with, that puts you at the top of the list. So suddenly I found myself writing that and it literally was just an email out of the blue. Right? Yeah, and I think the other aspect too is, I mean, if you look, you know, like probably um, mathematically, um, there are probably a lot of people that maybe are more qualified to do a lot of these things, <laughs> but you are the one that put in the time and the effort. You went to conventions, you met people, you helped people. Uh, it was really, um, you know, not just the effect that you're, you're competent, but also that you put in the time, put in the energy and was willing to, to, to do a lot of different things rather than just sitting in your living room saying, why is nobody calling me? Right. Well, that's part of it. But I mean, uh, I also know that when you're, you know, I, I had the fortune uh, of growing up in Southern Wisconsin, right? I often tell people if I'd grown up in LA, I'd have gotten into film. If I'd grown up in New York, I'd probably gotten into traditional book publishing first because um, I those were creative things I wanted to do. But if, uh, because I grew up in Southern Wisconsin, which was the birthplace of the hobby game industry, essentially, that's where I ended up being networked into. Right. Right. And, you know, my mom and dad could drive me to a convention when I was 13 or, you know, like Gary Gygax came out here for a convention at Boyd College when I was uh, 13 as well. I, I've got a, a signed copy of the tomb, uh, Temple of Elemental Evil from 1982. Right. Uh, when I played in a tournament, Gary happened to show up. You know, but, you know, that's because it was li literally a, a half hour drive to his house. Right. Right. So part of it's uh, just geographic location. Part of it's being willing to get out there and uh, trust people. Part of it also is that if somebody else needs help, I was always willing to help them, right? Especially if I couldn't do a job or if I wasn't qualified for a job, I was willing to recommend other people. And so if you're the kind of person who's willing to do that kind of networking, not just for yourself, but for the people around you, uh, sometimes that comes back to you. I mean, you can't just say, you owe me one. You know, it's not right. like that kind of a thing, but it's like, hey, I did you a solid. If the next time something comes up where my name might work, could you maybe do me a solid too kind of a thing, right? Uh, but, you know, I've had people, friends of mine in the industry that, you know, we just, you know, we go out and have dinner, we have beers, we talk in the evening, we play games, whatever, and we may never have worked together. We may never work together, but that doesn't mean we can't be friends anyway, right? And if something right. comes up where I could use their skills and services or vice versa, then we try to think of each other. Uh, it's yeah, and I think the thing is, I mean, I think most people 
aren't in the industry because of of money oh god no if you want to make money don't be a banker right <laughs> so you know it's it's really people who have a passion for a thing you know also you know doing work uh professionally for a thing you know it's 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 a lot different than just a bunch of accountants having to get along you're everybody enjoys gaming yeah yeah people may have their different peculiarities as far as personality or likes or dislikes but in general we all really enjoy something and getting together for that thing is what kind of you know really binds people together yeah you know most people don't wake up after a career of gaming and say oh my god I, i'm 40 i haven't done anything with my life i have a midlife crisis right <laughs> it's the other way around i mean people have midlife crises and they go into gaming right um because it's just it's it's a very welcoming group of people generally speaking and i say this as a white straight cis hats whatever kind of good dude uh, so i realize i'm privileged here in many many ways right right and i i have been working with some friends of mine to try to make that outreach better one of the great things I think in gaming nowadays is we have a much more diverse group of people than we ever have had before. And uh, I'm, we're trying to break down those barriers uh, for everybody, not just for minorities and, and uh, whatever, but so it's easier for other people to get in. So you, you don't want to say, they, they say you don't want to uh, climb the ladder and then pull it up behind you, right? To me, it was always kind of frightening. There have been a couple of years in the industry where I looked back and I didn't see a whole lot of young people coming in behind me. Right. Like, that's the sign of a dying industry, a dying hobby. Uh, suddenly you're going to become the, uh, the model train people as opposed to the vibrant fun people. You know, these are the, you know, model trains have come and gone over the years. Right. But generally speaking, they, it's the demographic has aging as we speak. Right. And for games, if you want them to be vibrant and fun and full of new ideas and new people, whatever, that means you have to be going with kids getting into it and growing up and doing it as a career and, and as a creative endeavor at the very least entirely along the way. So we always try to encourage that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, I think back in the, like, I think I got back into gaming um, maybe about 15 years ago or so, but I figured, you know, it seemed like things were dying and I thought, well, I'm happy with what I got and I can just learn to live with it. But it is amazing that since gaming has become more popular, uh, it, it, it can't just be, we need more Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Like it's gotta be like different experiences and different, more interesting things. Like kind of like even with like Marvel, you know, movies or comics, it's like these characters are the same comic, have been the same for the last 40 years. And like, you know, I don't need to just keep <laughs> seeing the same thing over and over and over and over again. I want to see something new. And I think with bringing in the younger people and a more diverse group, we're starting to see, you know, gaming change in ways, both like mechanically, narratively, you know, that wouldn't have been possible without that. Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's amazing to just get that fresh, fertile group of people coming in every every year, essentially, right? One of the reasons I love going to Gen Con and other conventions is just saying, people playing games. And, you know, nowadays, if I go, I can actually often see uh, not just children, but grandchildren coming in too, right? Yeah. Uh, people who I've known for decades are bringing grandchildren now. I'm like, you know, that's, just, it's it, it, like, holy shit, this could be something that could be here to stay, you say at your 50th Gen Con, right? Which, of course, we didn't have a 50th Gen Con because yeah. of pandemic, but you know, hopefully we'll be back maybe this year, hopefully the year after that. So during this whole time, <clears throat> Was your goal, so was your goal to um, be like full-time uh, into writing, editing, so forth for RPGs, 
was your interest in saying, you know what, I just want to be able to write, do different things. What what was starting out and even partway through? I mean, did the, those goals change? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> my dad likes to joke that I had a quarter life because when I was uh, 19 years old, I had actually had two degree programs going out at the University of Michigan. I had uh, settled into doing uh, electrical engineering, creative uh, electrical engineering, computer science for one degree or BS, and also a BA in creative writing at the same time. Had it approved by the deans of both colleges. I was going to graduate in five years. And I woke up one morning my sophomore year and said, God, I hate this. What's going to happen to me is I'm going to get a job in computer science. And this is back before computer games were all that big. So I thought I was going to be a systems analyst someplace, whatever, get a job like that and paying the bills and doing, you know, like your parents like, yeah, you can get the writing thing, but get the job or the degree that'll help you get a job too. I'm like, yeah, great. Um, but what's going to happen is I'm going to get that job and I'm going to come home after work and I'm going to uh, say, you know, I'd like to see my girlfriend, play a game, have a beer with my friends, whatever. And I'm never going to get around to doing the writing. All right. I just didn't think I was disciplined enough to pull that. Right. Um, I figured the only way to actually do that then and not hate myself when I was in my 40s was to drop the engineering degree. So I quit the engineering school, got out of school in three years instead with a creative writing degree, just so I could literally dive into the deep end of the pool when I was a kid. And I figured that if I blew it, I could always go back to school and finish <laughs> off the engineering degree, right? I was only it was within a reasonable amount of time. Obviously, at this point, I'm screwed myself. I can't go back uh, to college at this point. I, I wouldn't know anything I was doing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, to me, it was always not that I, um, I wanted to do writing. I wanted to do writing of some sort, either in game design or novels or whatever else. And this was my path to doing it. I just kind of stumbled into it, really. But um, and but I also made sure I was going to dedicate myself to it. So when I got back from Games Workshop, my student work visa expired uh, in six months, right? And they actually offered me a full-time permanent position. And uh, my girlfriend at the time back in Ann Arbor said, you know, if you do this, this is all pre-FaceTime, pre-internet, even we weren't even doing email. We were writing letters to each other and having to post them, right? And having them take, you know, three to five days to get back and forth. Um, you know, she says, if you're going to do this, I don't think we can, I can manage this. We're going to have to break up. I said, well, fuck that. I'm coming home. So I, uh, got on a plane. I got home on, uh, got back to Ann Arbor on Valentine's day, 1990, uh, to meet that girl. And I said, you know, I can always find another job, but I, you know, hard to find somebody you love this much. And it worked out well, cause that's my, my wife and the mother of my five children. So, oh, you know, we've so you made the right choice 28 years now. So it's, um, uh, <clears throat> I, again, I think a lot of times it's just a matter of knowing where your priorities are, where they should be, and then following that and trusting that the rest of the things will work out for you, hopefully, right? And obviously not everybody is, is as fortunate as I have been in having all that happen. So um, I, I call myself blessed to be able to look back and see I made a lot of what I made decisions that worked out fairly well for myself uh, at the right times. So I, uh, when I got back, uh, I didn't have a job. I, didn't, uh, I actually worked as a course assistant for a guy named Eric Rabkin at university uh, for his fantasy class and his science fiction class. But that was like very low part-time stuff. Um, and the rest of it, I started doing freelance uh, stuff for Games Workshop and then for other companies. And I think my first year, I made so little money that my girlfriend at the time paid my, uh, my rent for my birthday and for Christmas. Right. And because uh, it wasn't a lot of money either. It was just I couldn't afford it. So uh, my next year, I made double that year after that, I made double that until I was, I was suddenly making decent money. Um, and then as I started making really good money, I went off and did 
uh, I founded a company called Pinnacle Entertainment Group with a friend of mine, Shane Hensley, uh, with his game idea he had for something called Deadlands, which was a zombie cowboy thing. Yeah. Weird Westerns. And I did that for four years. And then we started having kids, my wife and I. And uh, we decided to move back to Wisconsin. We kind of broke up, broke the company up. And uh, I've been living here in Wisconsin ever since. You know, and I went back to freelancing. I did take a job for uh, for about 20 months with, only time I've ever worked for anybody besides myself. And we're still in the gaming industry. I worked for a video game company called Human Head Studios, heading up their adventure game division. We did a couple of, uh, two or three different games for them. Um, uh, there was uh, Redhurst Academy of Magic and Frankenstein's, no, it was Dracula's Revenge and Frankenstein's Children, which were little horror board games, kind of space hockey type games. And uh, as soon as my wife was itching to go back to work, um, and she quit work because she became pregnant with quadruplets, which was, you know, threw our lives into uh, utter chaos for quite some time. Now, I think you're going to college right now. Um, so it's... Uh, in fact, my kids were just featured on the front page of the Wisconsin State Journal last Sunday as, oh, really? as for uh, going off to college virtually to four different colleges. Um, those four, then my eldest, Marty, graduated and actually is freelancing for me uh, as a game writer now. Uh, he graduated back in May. So, um, But I, you know, I got out of college and did this stuff and just I never really wanted to work for anybody else. Right. And part of that is my dad was an attorney. He ended up working for himself. My grandfather was a salesman. He worked for a bunch of people, but he also owned his own place and worked for himself for decades that I knew him. Um, and I always liked the idea of not having to, uh, not having to answer other people, not because I have authority issues, which <coughs> I may have, but, um, <laughs> but also uh, the idea that there were permanent jobs where you could trust somebody else to take care of you and your family and that uh, they would always have your best interests at heart. That was falling apart even when I was in college, right? And I could see that I would much rather trust myself and have it be my responsibility to go out and make the money than to trust somebody else to go find those jobs and then turn around and hire me, right? Uh, whatever it happened to be, whether I was working computer science or you know flipping burgers, or driving pizza like I used to do in college, or writing something. So I, generally speaking, prefer to be my own boss. I, I was actually offered a full-time position at TSR twice and turned it down. Um, First time because I didn't want to leave my girlfriend again in Ann Arbor. And the second time because when they were offering me, I said, how much are you offering? And they're like this. And I'm like, I make more money freelancing. Why would I go work for you guys for less money? So what, what time period was this for the TSR asking you to come work for them? Uh, well, Trey Denning, again, asked me uh, about working for him back in like 91, I think, maybe 90. Um, probably 91. But I just moved back to be with my girlfriend. I'm like, I'm not going to leave her here. That was the whole point, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, years later, Tim Brown, who's another friend of mine, um, I, I'd known a little bit before that, but not much. He actually got to talking salary negotiations. And uh, he's like, well, this is what we offer for starting editor, blah, 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 or, or starting writer. I'm like, wow, I actually make better money than that uh, at on my own. And I don't have to listen to a boss uh, or worry about whether or not you guys are going to fire me or... Uh, whether or not I like the gig you're giving me or whatever. I mean, sure, it comes with benefits, but you know, wasn't worth that to me. So I said, geez, Tim, that's really great, but I'm not going to do that. So, um, and then, of course, TSR folded many years later, Wizards of the Coast started up. Uh, I actually was offered a job at Mattel once as a director of a new um, collectible games division. And we got talking to the point where we're going to talk salary. 
And again, we looked at the numbers. I'm like, well, this is what I make freelancing. I live in Beloit, Wisconsin, which is dirt cheap part of the world to live in. Right. And you're going to want to pay me to go move to El Segundo, California, which is not a cheap part of the world to live in. Literally three times the cost of living. Right. And they, they looked at the numbers like, well, to be able to make you have the kind of living you have in Beloit out here in California, we would have to pay you more than your boss's boss makes. So that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, well, you know, fine, I'll freelance for you. I'll do something else. Yeah. I'm not going to take a pay cut to go work for you guys. Uh, you know, I could say, well, I'm bringing games to the masses. I'm working for Mattel. But, you know, really, is that what you want in your gravestone as I work for Mattel? You know, uh, you want the fact that you had a good life with your friends, your family, and, you know, uh, enjoyed yourself and did things you cared about as opposed to punching a clock for somebody else. At least that's how I felt, right? Um, and so I turned down a lot of those, those offers over the years, and uh, it's worked out, again, fairly well for me. Now, if somebody showed up and said, here's a million bucks and come work for me, uh, I'd have to have one of my, um, uh, what's that film? What's the great Christmas film? It's a wonderful life, right? I'd have to have right. one of my wonderful life moments and see if they were you know, really a good person or if they were just a Mr. Potter. <laughs> um, right. And you know, so far I've been able to stick to my guns and I'm, I'm an old man now, well, 52. Um, but I've been doing this since I literally, since I got out of college, I've never had a full-time gig outside of working in games and writing. Uh, and it's gotten me all over the world. I've worked uh, for freelance for computer game companies have taken me to China and to Singapore and to Sweden and uh, all around the world, different places. Uh, so I don't complain. I, I feel very fortunate. So, you know, I mean, obviously you started when you did and there's different circumstances and the world was different you yeah. know, back in the day. But I guess the, the question is, I mean, so would you say that if somebody wanting to to take a similar path and there were wanting to start out, let's say now, um, would you kind of recommend the same sort of things or what, what were your thoughts for somebody that says, yeah, I want to, I want to write, become a, I want to become either part-time that would eventually dovetail to being a full-time writer. Well, what I would say is, uh, I, well, okay. It's hard to do now, or it's a different way to do it now. Right. It's not harder to do. It's just different. Uh, a friend of mine, Dennis Detwiller, who's with, uh, um, does Delta Green for Pagan Publishing, there we go. Yeah. And that's, Dennis is one of the principals of the company. He worked for uh, 15 some years for various large video game companies, became VP of one of them. Uh, and then realized he was busting his ass to make money for other people and never seeing his kids and you know working long, long days. Uh, decided to get the hell out of San Francisco and moved to Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and he'll tell you the same kind of advice I will, which is if you wanna do this kind of stuff, uh, and you want to be a creative person, one of the best things to do is cut your expenses as low as you humanly can go. Because part of the problem is making the jump from uh, doing what you're doing to what you want to do, right? Right. And if you are if you have a lot of responsibilities, I mean, obviously one answer is to start young when you're in college, right? And you have little expenses and little in the way of responsibilities. But if you're older and you got kids and you got a mortgage and you got cars and you, you're looking at yeah. uh, retirement savings you need to do and you're uh, college bills coming up and all this kind of stuff, it becomes a lot harder to uh, make these kind of decisions, take these risks, essentially. But if you can manage to cut your expenses to as low as you possibly can go and move someplace where it doesn't cost you as much to live and, uh, you know, basically live cheaply, then you can, it gives you more economic freedom to do the things you want to do, right? 
uh, like when I was in college, I mean, I got out, I lived in hell holes, you know, just because I didn't want to pay any rent to, uh, expensive rent to people. So um, nowadays though, what you do is you cut your expenses and then you start seeing if you, uh, if there's a game you really want to work for, you can start pushing at those people say, what can I do for you? They have submission guidelines on their websites if they're interested in that kind of stuff. If you can volunteer to help them out at conventions, honestly, it's still a good way to get to know people and network, right? For instance, if you're going to be going to Gen Con anyway, and you want to volunteer for say four to eight hours, they might pay for your batch. If you want to volunteer more time, they might pay for your hotel room and your meals, right? And that's a good way, good cheap way for you to be able to go to the show fairly expense free and get in. And not only are you going to the show, but you're getting an insider's view to the show where you're uh, not just walking around and playing games, but you're working for a company essentially, right? And that company then, again, if they see you as a reliable person who can show up on time and do the things they're asked to do and pitch in and help them out when they're in a pinch, uh, then when you call them up or email them and say, hey, I'm interested in writing for you, or if you nudge them and they say, contact me when I, we get back to the place, you've got an in that nobody else does. You go to the top of the heap for people that are going to consider looking at stuff. Again, because they know you more than somebody coming off the street or just cold emailing you, right? Um, the other thing you can do though now is that there's, uh, there's, so that's if you want to go into that route where you're trying to freelance for lots of larger people. The other thing you can do now is self-publishing is easy, right? It's really tremendously easy. I mean, again, I learned how to do a lot of the desktop publishing and layout and all that kind of stuff when it was in its infancy. Um, I, I talked about that first uh, newsletter I did. I actually did that in physical paste up where we actually cut things out from a typewriter essentially and pasted them onto boards with blue lines on them and took them down to a printer that used a film camera to make plates out of these things and print them, right? Nowadays, and that was expensive. Nowadays, it's really simple. I mean, you just send people PDFs for Christ's sake. You don't even have to print anything. So your costs get very low. Uh, you can also do print on demand, which again, uh, you don't have to worry about, do I have enough demand for a, a 2000 copy print run or a 5000 copy print run, which is a risk of a huge amount of money when you're starting out, right? But you can start low, you can start selling stuff through the DMs Guild, drive through RPG, on your own website, whatever you want to do. And if you're doing great work, people will notice, right? Uh, not only will they, will be fans out there will notice, but the fact is you were alluding to before, everybody in the, in the industry is also a fan, right? Nobody gets into this because they just want scads of cash. They get into it because they love games, right? Uh, and if they so if you come out with that cool hip new indie thing that everybody goes, oh, wow, did you see what they did there? That's cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you say, but you know what? I've always wanted to write for Call of Cthulhu. The Chaosium guys may go, well, you know, you, we loved your shit. You can come over here and write for us, right? Uh, it's the same with breaking with DC and Marvel nowadays. If you're trying to do comic books, they, there's no actual way to apply for a job as a writer. You can't walk up and say, I'd like to write for you. The best way to break in as a comic book writer is to say, uh, go publish your own comic. And then if people like it, DC and Marvel will notice. The other way to do it, of course, is to be a best-selling writer in some other field or a uh, director right. or whatever, because they'll take your name recognition and bring you in, right? Uh, which is, you know, how do you become uh, uh, how do you become this best-selling comic book writer? You have to become famous in something else versus crap advice, but because uh, you can't follow that, you can't do it. But um, but do your own stuff. And the neat thing about doing that is that you then own all that stuff. It's not something that belongs to some corporate group that's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you're doing this work for higher stuff, uh, you don't own it. All that stuff I wrote for Marvel and TSR and uh, Wizards of the Coast and and whatever, I don't own that stuff. I own the stuff that I do for myself. Right. Right. 
Um, and at the end of the day, if somebody wants to option one of my things for a film, and if it's something I wrote for Wizards, I don't get a dime of that. But if it's something I wrote for myself, I get all the money, right? Well, all the money that goes to the creator, at least. So it's tricky. So if you're starting out, I would say, you know, cut your expenses to what you can do. If you're really dead serious about doing this, and if you want to, just do it as a hobby. Nobody, you know, this doesn't have to be your full-time gig, right? I mean, that's obviously the dream for a lot of folks. But if your dream is just to get your name in print, there's no reason you have to give up your day job. You just have to give up your nights and weekends, right? And if it suddenly takes off on you, then you can start doing the calculations. Say, well, if I want to do this full-time. I got to be able to live on this amount of money. And then I have to give up this cushy job I already got. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, mm, I kind of like that cushy job, right? I can still play games on the evenings and weekends or, or write them or whatever on the evenings and weekends. But the cushy job is something that uh, is hard to walk away from. Um, I condition myself to never have a cushy job. So but it's the truth. So. See, I'm in the position right now. I've kind of got a cushy job. I'm, I'm 53. I can technically require, I can technically retire in two years. Cool. with a very small pension but affordable health care so you know my thought is you know being able to start doing stuff now to set myself to be able to do some work in five years but but like you it's like i still need income yeah <laughs> but probably more important than income i need to cut my costs which means you know getting out of this house you know with the with the, with the property taxes being what they are and so forth so in a lot of ways what you're saying is kind of in a way not unlike preparing for a retirement. It, well, you're preparing to live within your means and do what you want to do. So in that sense, yeah, it's like preparing for retirement, right? And, and you're knowing that your income is probably, unless you've done really well, your income is probably going to be less. Exactly. Well, it depends what you do. I mean, for some people, if you're, uh, if all you're doing is working minimum wage jobs anyways, then it's a move up, right? <laughs> but oh, that's true. But, so again, that's one of the reasons it's easy to start when you're in college, right? Uh, or in high school. Because you're like, well, you know, I got shit jobs anyway. What are my other options? Um, I mean, I graduated in 1989, which was uh, uh, the first Bush's recession, right? Um, so there weren't a whole lot of jobs for creative writing majors in 1989. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, no, I remember those days. And, and, we, and we get recessions every so often. If you happen to be graduating in the middle of a recession, like I have kids right now who just graduated high school and my son who graduated college. And they're like, should we go get a job? I'm like, you know, even summer jobs, are you really going to risk your health and everything else in a pandemic where there's, there aren't enough jobs for people who desperately need them? Um, just so you can have a little bit over, you can have minimum wage jobs right now. Uh, or you can live here at home and, you know, I'll treat you kindly and I'll put you to work doing, uh, writing games for me if you can. <laughs> so, uh, so, but, you know, again, we're a fortunate position where I can pull that off with them. But, you know, they also can start doing creative stuff that they want to do without worrying about their bills at the moment. Right. Well, I think the other thing too is you know you went a, a diverse route, so you're you don't have all your eggs in one basket. No, that's true. I mean, uh, one of the things that I realized early on is that you know I when I came to freelancing, I hit the the ceiling of it pretty early on. So um, that meant that okay, making I think it was ten cents, maybe twelve cents a word at the time. Like, well, this is as high as it goes right now. And if I want to make more money, which I do, because I had you know wife, kids coming out, all that stuff. Um, then I probably should do other stuff. That doesn't mean I abandon gaming because I still I still do games to this day. Obviously, I'm even publishing games again nowadays. But uh, if I wanted to make more money, I'd write other things. So I took what skills I had and I transferred them over to other things. One of the things I did is I got into doing novels, which is not exactly 
a step, it has a potential, a much higher potential for payout. But if you're doing, if you're a mid-list writer, it's more like a sideways step than a rocket to the moon. Um, and I also started writing uh, tie-in books for different other companies. I, like I wrote a couple of editions of the Marvel Encyclopedia. I wrote a Captain America book, I wrote a Star Wars book, writing Halo novels. Um, and also started writing for video games. And writing for video games can be, actually be fairly lucrative, right? Um, because again, there's, uh, there's a, an order of magnitude more money in video games than there is in tabletop games, at least one order of magnitude, not two or three. Well, I think also, I mean, it, it appears from the outside, I don't have any insider knowledge, but it appears that the people that they need to uh, be good at writing those types of games are a fairly small group of people. Like, yeah, and it seems like a lot of the people in the at pen and paper uh, RPG hobby who have been very successful are prime targets for the video game industry. Right. Well, I mean, part of the reason is because you already understand that this is not a novel or a film you're writing. This is a game. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is a big leap for a screenwriter or a novelist to take sometimes. They look at it and say, but I don't have control over the characters. I can't you know, control the timing and the pacing of the plot. And you're like, yeah, because it's a game. The players have control, right? <laughs> if you're a gamer already, you understand that, right? You're not actually coming up with a story. You're coming up with tools for other people to make stories of their own. Right. And uh, you're trying to give them interesting choices. You know, one of the definitions of a game is a series of interesting choices, right? And so if you can write interesting choices for people and make it entertaining for them as, as you go, then you're, you're doing yourself a favor. Uh, but yeah, that's one of the reasons that originally when they started doing game design uh, they, uh, uh, for computer games, they plundered the paper market because there wasn't anybody else who had those skills, right? right. They're, still, they're still doing that to this day. Nowadays, they actually have game design degrees Right, uh, which blows my mind. My son uh, Patrick actually is going to get a game design degree from UW Stout up in uh, Menominee, uh, Wisconsin. And you know, when I was growing up, there was no such hint that there would ever be a degree right. that you would get in uh, in game design. And uh, it's it's kind of crazy. When is this going to air, by the way? Um, it will. It will be. Probably the soonest would be two weeks. Okay, well, I can tell you a secret though. Uh, Lonzo doesn't come out before that, but I actually just took a gig teaching at Stout, uh, which I'm going to start doing next Monday. So they called me up or, or emailed me and said, uh, "We really need somebody to teach uh, GDD 355, I think it is, Game Design 355, a junior level class for designing two-dimensional role, uh, two-dimensional games, right, video games. And uh, we need somebody desperately. Can you help?" And I'm like, I'm not traveling up to Menominee, but I'm going to teach this course uh, virtually as a uh, adjunct professor part-time from my desk right where I'm doing this right now. Uh, but the idea that somebody would teach video game design or learn video game design at a college level was just, uh, you couldn't have dreamed of this when I was in college. No, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, the satanic panic, I think also being part of a, you know, when we were young, I'm not sure it was where you're at, but I'm, I'm assuming the same. Doing RPGs really wasn't seen as cool. No. <laughs> the stuff we consumed wasn't cool. We were kind of not necessarily like complete outcasts, but I mean, it was not seen in any way. Um, I'll say it's not any way positive, but there, it, it was just definitely. Oh, it was a geeky, nerdy hobby. It still is, to be honest with you, right? Right, but the nerds and the geeks were not celebrated. No, they were no, castigated. A, They're ridiculed. A geek is not a terrible thing these days. Right? No, but now it's like I don't even recognize this world. No, it's fantastic. 
it, it, well, it is, it is, you know, and, and going back to like di diversity, I mean, you know, back in, our, in the day, you know, I would say it was the gaming or my gaming group was just all guys. But now it's like when we moved, I didn't really have I had problems finding a gaming group. So I my kids um, had friends. So I started inviting their friends. And it's like, you know, if I look at the demographics of my gaming group, it is like completely flipped to yeah. and I say completely flipped. But I mean, it's like there's me, me, one other guy, another guy in his 20s, another guy in his late 20s. And and the, and the rest are, are women. That's and, very cool. Um, wow. And they're all, and we're all different. And um, and then, and what's uh, what I find, and I kind of uh, find fascinating about role playing, is even like with conventions. Like I don't know how people vote. I don't know what people's positions are. Different things. I really, but we can all just come together, enjoy each other's time together. Maybe not be you'll have deep, deep friendships, but we can be friends. Well, I, yeah, I think it's it really helps you understand that uh, even people you have political differences with are human, right? Yeah. If you can connect on a human level, you might be able to connect on other levels that help ideally change minds, right? I have some very right. good friends who are, uh, I'm very liberal, right? I have some very good friends who are very conservative and, uh, and I love them literally, right? But I, it, it hurts me sometimes to see, uh, fortunately none of them are rabid assholes, right? Right. So. Because uh, when it comes to rabbit assholes, you should cut them out of your life. It's no reason to have to uh, be sticking around with that. But uh, but if you could say, let's let's start, what's the base of our friendship and how can we enjoy this together, and then not ignore what they're doing, especially if they're being rabbit assholes. But uh, but uh, say, look, we're human, and look, because you see me as a human being that you respect and and understand and trust, maybe then we can have a conversation as opposed to just shouting at each other. Right. Well, and I think the other thing too is even from our our standpoint, which helped me to realize, is that when people have different opinions and that even if they may be completely wrong, there's a lot of times a reason why they do. Yeah, you know, it's not just like somebody just says, you know, I'm a a a, a crazy liberal, crazy uh, uh, conservative, and I just, you know, but it's like if you look back in the history, the things that they've experienced. Their situations, it's like, you know what, they may not be right, but but there's sometimes reasons why people came to where they're at. Yeah. And it may not be just because of, you know, a flaw. It just may be their circumstances are different. And maybe oh, when you're a little empathetic towards that, you can actually have a conversation. Maybe nobody actually jumps sides, but people at least come to an understanding, like, you know what, we can be thoughtful about this and we can be considerate and empathetic. Well, you try to be respectful. I, I do think the real problem is a lack of empathy in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I have my opinions on which side of the aisle that generally tends to fall. But uh, again, I think it's uh, if you can show empathy for other people and games, honestly, I think are an empathy tool. They're an empathy training tool, right? Because you learn about, you try, especially role playing games, you're taking on the role of different people. And you're being put in situations that are different than you would normally experience in your life. And the idea that you can literally walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, right? Out of a character that you create or maybe is presented to you. That's an, an incredible tool for learning empathy, I think. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to me, in many ways, I, you know, because you know, maybe 10 years ago, I thought, you know, role playing was pretty much at its pinnacle. All we're, all we're talking about is a finer um, or a refinement 
of the hero system or a finer refinement of, you know, whatever. But, you know, with, and I've not played it, but, you know, with games like Harlem Unbound yeah, yeah. and plus a lot of these other indie games, like, you know, there's an opportunity that you could actually help people understand. You may not still agree, but it's like, well, wait a minute. You know what? I may not completely agree with this view or that view, but it's like, it didn't occur in a vacuum. And there's probably a reason why people have these underlying feelings. Right. And you can say, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. No, Spivey's doing some great work. He's a guy who wrote uh, Harlem and Bound. In fact, he's got a new one out, uh, coming out called Haunted West, which I hope will be out this year. And I actually wrote a short story for it for the Kickstarter that I did. And it's uh, no, neat. Uh, basically a, a Western, uh, weird Western game where it concentrates on, uh, uh, on minorities in the Old West, right? Black cowboys and sheriffs like Bass Reeves and stuff. A lot of us have been introduced to this stuff in modern media nowadays. I mean, the Watchmen television show, for instance, right. opened up a lot of eyes to the Tulsa race riots and even the Bass Reeves, which was in it, right? Um, and there's a lot of amazing things you can do. Again, entertainment of any kind can be an empathy tool because you're learning how well, to care about think, other people. I think the other things back in my days, like say my early 20s, or maybe it was there, there was a movie where they had a bunch of, um, it was like when Young Guns was real popular and mm -hmm. I, I couldn't find but they had a bunch of black cowboys. And I thought, well, how politically correct weird is that? And then it's like, I found later, it's like, no, they're the ones that started this whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> it was the minorities. They they were the cowboys. Exactly. Once things got, they got things worked out, then the white people came in and said, hey, there's money to be made here. Let's do the same thing. Exactly. And that, and then all, you know, you go through all the media, there is a complete, like you go through all the movies and TV shows, the complete absence of black people in, in minorities in those settings. You say, well, it's just it's just media. Well, it's worked into my consciousness thinking oh, yeah. there were no black people. It's like, no, it's actually the opposite. Exactly. It's like, and I think that these types of things, once we become aware, it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> what are we thinking? No, and I think it improves things then. I mean, you can look at, at uh, the diversity amongst entertainment nowadays. One of the reasons it was all white people in the old Westerns is because Hollywood was all white people, right? Or the yeah. majority of it. Um, mostly white men, which is again why you know that's what you see in the entertainment in those days, and it's wonderful to see things nowadays. Like I was watching Star Trek Discovery the other day, and I looked and I'm like, you know what? There is not a single white man on the bridge of this of the starship. There, um, there's no straight white male character in the entire show. No, well, the show, but on the ship of all the characters in the ship, I'm like, you know what? I'm happy about that. I'm comfortable. Yeah, I think it's neat. Um, you know, it, I. Everything shouldn't be about straight white dudes, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, and, and for the longest time, it's like, even I remember when they had year, decades and decades ago, the Fantastic Four, you know, where they, you know, had a, a, one of the, the members was uh, uh, was black. I can't remember which one this Johnny was. Johnny Storm, they turned the Human Torch. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, it, and that was the guy who ended up playing Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan, right? Uh, yeah. In the Black Panther films. Uh, but one of his first roles, his early roles, was doing Johnny Storm in the Human Torch. Yeah, and at first I thought, like, you know, how politically correct, why are they messing with this? But then after a while, it's like, you know, I've seen all the stories of white people, not all, but you know, it's like, it's all we see. And there's a point where this is no longer interesting. Like, let's forget about being, you know, it's like, this is, this is dull. This is dull. Fantastic Four, they're dull. The, all the Avengers, we've seen this all. And once you see stuff like that people are putting out where it's like, you know, women, that are in legitimate roles and people minorities are in legitimate roles and they bring their own nuances, their own backgrounds. It's like, this is much more interesting than the stuff we've been consuming for 
for the last oh yeah you know, it's a fresh take on it at the very least i mean i i also think it's great to see some of the new stuff coming out that's not affiliated with that stuff but, yeah um, but yeah it's, it's good to have a fresh take in these things i mean they've done a lot of gender flipping and race flipping with a lot of these different characters you know uh, and some of them are even better than the originals. I mean, like, I'm a huge Spider-Man fan, right? But Miles Morales, holy Christ, that end of the Spider-Verse film could not have been better, right? See, I don't consume a lot of comic books, but yeah, I agree that that was much more interesting than seeing the, the 14th iteration of Peter Parker. Yeah, exactly, right? It's uh, like, I, I, I would... I'm a big Peter Parker this... fan from way back, but still, Miles is amazing, right? I agree, I agree. And I, and I, and I also was thinking, it's like, if you take these movies, I would pay to, re to instead of making the same movie over and over again, it's like, why not flip it? Like, what if you took Star Wars and completely gender flipped the whole thing? Sure. Yeah. Jedi's because, you know, back in the assumption was Jedi's are all men was kind of the assumption. But, you know, and and who's getting rescued? Who's just like, yeah. you know, I would I would rewatch if they if they actually played it with heart and interest and they just did the same stories but flip people around and change the stories around a bit it's like that's much more interesting yeah I'm, you know i enjoyed the star wars but it's like doing that you know they're like uh ryan johnson i think it's got a, a trilogy they gave him there's a bunch of what well, oh the woman who directed, patty jenkins is actually doing a rogue one film right like I, i'm also ready for fresh stories that aren't just the hero's journey you know all the way through <laughs> yeah, um, like, you know, i think that's part of story marvel's story. they don't have to all be the same Marvel's success is, I think, also their um, willingness to uh, hit different genres. So yeah, I think so too. That's that's freshened up their stuff a bit, right? So I mean, like Thor went from being this Shakespearean thing. To oh, being, awful! Yeah, being this crazy <laughs> Ragnarok that was a, a breath of fresh air. You know, Taika Waititi comes in there, does this yeah. new thing with her. You're like, wow, that was cool, you know? And, and Captain America: Winter Soldier, yep. uh, that whole uh, '70s, that you know, spy genre. Yeah, that was a yeah, I mean that. You know, I think there's there's so much more that can be done with 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 those stories, and and so many more things can be done with games. And I think I think we're actually, you know, it it, you know, we were that hardcore that kind of made it through. But now that that now that's it's actually becoming more more popular and more people involved. It's I think it's going to turn to a much bigger and much different thing than any of us could have imagined. Well, let's hope. I mean, Christ, you can't get much bigger than Marvel movies these days with Star Wars. Now. I hear you. Well, we probably, we probably better call this uh, uh, to an end. I think we're hitting the time-space continuum on this interview. So uh, thanks very much for, for taking the time, Matt. I appreciate it. I do have a fifth edition campaign I run online for a couple people, but it's heavily hacked with a lot of other side rules and stuff. But otherwise, um, like mainstream stuff, Shadow of the Demon Lord is my jam. That's my big game that I go to. And then otherwise, just simpler, more OSR. Um, I like White Box. I like Basic Fantasy. Yeah. I don't... I, I think the... Um... <clears throat> Yeah, because D and D fifth edition, I, I don't mind the rules, but I, I I realize I just really completely hate, I hate high fantasy like that. I really, absolutely, do not like it. <laughs> we're playing a game, we're playing Descent in Alvernus, which I Avernus. Yeah, that actually that's the one I'm running. <laughs> oh, okay. So we can talk. I can talk smack about it now. So it starts out, and this is why I don't understand with, with TSR, who has the pockets, they have great writers, all this sort of stuff. But 
it is like the weirdest choices that they make for starting out a story. So you see a guy, a, a guy beating up another guy, a, a, a policeman, one of the whatever. Mm-hmm. And so no matter really, it sounds like what happens, you wind up being in the police. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the guy that gets beat up, when you try to interact him, he really doesn't matter. Nope. And you're basically at the whims of doing whatever that police guy says in order to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, why did they not? Then you go into the, the one where you go into the, um, then you, then there's like the ambush in the, in the inn mm-hmm. where that giant half ogre does nothing. She's like supposed to be very impressive. She doesn't stop these people oh. from murdering people. And, and I'm thinking there was no way for me really to, it's like this combat's going to happen. There's no way of avoiding it. There's no choices. And then we go down into the bathhouse and go down the sewers. And it's like, it is, there's no choice. Like, like these prisoners, like you rescue guy. Well, should we take him back? Well, if you want to. Like, like why didn't you already be in the police? You're trying to find, you know, an agent or whatever, or they're killing the police officers. You find a guy, oh, it's, it's, you know, some, but like none of this is connected. And I'm like, this is such a, a lackluster storyline. Yeah, I completely revamped all of that. Okay. We threw it all out the door. I kept the maps and the same ideas, but yeah, I had my players actually, they're all doing a very anti-hero sort of thing, almost like Punisher-esque. So they're all sort of bad, but they all started out in prison, basically did a prison break, got into the city and started realizing that there was the murderous cults running around who they happened to piss off back in prison. So then they started kind of getting into a feud with those and realized that they needed to help the police and stuff kind of crack down on the crime going on or else they were going to be killed through the cults and then kind of deteriorated from there to eventually when they went down to Avernus and whatnot. But yeah, it was all of that did, it, my players said the same thing. They're like, well, why is this guy telling us what to do? <laughs> yeah, it's like, why am I doing, why are we just going down these sewers and, and like <laughs> to kill these people? It's like, and then I think the other problem is they try and do this horror theme and it just doesn't work. Not for wizards, no. <laughs> and then we get into this hallway. It's a five foot wall, five foot wide hallway, long and with a corner. So I kind of set everybody up for melee. Those guys are Paul Longbows. I'm like, what? Who, when you have a line of people in a five foot quarter pulls out a longbow, it makes zero sense. And I'm not, and I'm not what I, I kind of said something initially, but you know, it's in the book as a GM, I'm not going to sabotage, but I'm just thinking this is stupid. The same thing when I was down in Avernus, I basically just turned it into a sandbox and I'd let them kind of cruise around and do whatever they want to do for a while. Because even the main plot is a little Yankee. (laughs) So they've been just kind of cruising around making deals and gaining power and trying to decide if they want to take over and become the Lords of Avernus. So... Well, well, that's interesting. And I think even like the way you started was actually a really good start. I mean, there's actually, it seemed like, I think the idea is you either try and finesse the narrative, which I think is hard, which is what you did, but it worked, or you just actually just start people where you want them to be. Yeah. But not this kind of like, 
it's just strange. It's just strange. And I, and I obviously understand that sometimes as a player, you know, you just have to just take the breadcrumbs and not, not question it. You know what I mean? There's, there's a point where it's like, we don't necessarily need to have a tremendous backstory just to go do a thing, but still it's like, this is a major plot line, a major story in the very beginning of it is absolutely nothing but large blocks of narrative being read at me and then really no agency and the people that you deal with don't even matter. Nope. Even the city itself, they're, you know, this taken on uh, Elturel. They're like, well, why do we care about that? I'm like, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have nothing to do with that city. You've never been there, I guess. And yeah. Yeah. Like, well, but I had it sold that they got messed up in, with one of these cults that had a um, devilish leader who made a contract that really screwed them over. And then he went back to Avernus. So they were like, well, in order to break this contract, we're going to have to go find this guy. And so they had to go to Avernus because of that. So they still don't really give two craps about Elturel. <laughs> so they're just looking for this guy. So I'm slowly making mixing it in that basically they're going to be stuck there if Elturel falls because Zeriel's using all the sacrifices of the city to basically gain power and release hell across the world, essentially. So they realize that unless they want to stay there, they have to stop her. But now they're like, well, can't we just take over? <laughs> <laughs> sure, if that's what you want. <laughs> Make him make the deal with the devils. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's I mean, and that stuff's fun. And 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 also, you know, and it may get better on its own, you know. And I think it's it's just, you know, it's just and probably cup of tea too. It's just like you know, a person you finally kill this person and all of a sudden these gauntlets energize and come up and attack you. It's just there's so much stuff with high fantasy that just turns into like to me, when there's a point where there's no anticipating what could happen just because they can do whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, well, it's high fantasy. Yep. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so, they say, I ask the same thing too. They're like, well, isn't there like more powerful people than us level one guys that can do <laughs> like, Yeah, but they're busy with something else. Yeah. Like, so why, is, why is Batman having to face off the, the, whatever conquerors of the galaxy where's where's the justice league when all this is happening <laughs> yeah you know why where are they at so yeah it's it that's the other stuff that just kind of kind of weird but that's that's just me and and i know that many 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 people enjoy high fantasy yeah and they enjoy and, and everybody in my group that's in this game they're all loving it so i i'm you know i realize that but but that's just <laughs> But as a GM, I mean, as even playing as a GM, I kind of look for not necessarily, I, you know, I do look at choices what the GM makes. I kind of look at choices that the material makes. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I have a hard time turning that off. But uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I feel it. I mean, we're on like session 38, 39 now. Amazing. We're pretty far into it, but it's completely off the rails from what it was. I mean, as far as the main plot, they could care less. But they're all having fun. I'm having fun. I'm just wing it so normally the way my group rolls is we play by eight sessions of something and that's generally about the time everybody's tired and we'll do something completely different <laughs> like completely different so and uh so it'll be interesting to see how far we get through avernus um uh, before people say okay time for something different 
But, but I do kind of, I do admire people that are able to, to do those longer sessions. No, this one we did. It's a pretty set group. It's an online game of just the same group of people. But one of the other players did uh, Storm King's Thunder last time. And that was about three years we played. I think it was 70 some sessions we ended with that one. And then it just rotates GMs. I'm doing this one and then I don't know what we'll do next. But. I wish they would spend their, I wish, because for the most part, I will not buy, I don't run 5e. I do have 5e and I do have mobile 5e products. But um, I don't probably never buy another 5e adventure. Uh, from TSR, I just wish that they would ratchet down the scale, the scope, ratchet yeah. down the scope, make it a little bit shorter, and just flesh out that and not try and do some strange. Yeah, they've taken a very weird marketing scheme with 5e, doing the longer books, and I don't know, it's different, but it seems to work for them, I guess. But... Right, nobody can argue the economics. Nope. I, but I cannot imagine trying to run a game if you're uh, new to the system, to role-playing. Yeah. Nope. I did Curse of Strahd, but I ran that with Shadow of the Demon Lord. That was a lot of fun. Now, to me, you know, I listen to Robert Schwab. Uh, I've, I've only played in conventions, but that sounds, the setup and everything, that sounds like a fairly perfect um, ecosystem that he created. Yeah, it's... Have you played Shadow of the Demon Lord at all? Yeah, just a one session at a tournament. Okay. Not a tournament, but at a convention. That's that's it. That's I backed to that way back when on Kickstarter when he did it. That was like the first Kickstarter I ever backed. Cause just I'm a big fan of his stuff anyway. But yeah, the game is a lot of fun. It's doesn't have that high. It's very grungy and dirty feeling. It doesn't have that high fantasy feeling. It, it can it can run it certainly, but it doesn't have that feeling that D D has itself. So it fit perfect with Curse of Strahd. I mean. I always feel like with Curse of Strahd and these other ones, it's really hard to kill the characters because if you do, trying to mix in a new character that actually has anything to care about right. ruins it. Where with Shadow Demon Lord, I mean, they went through seven, eight characters a piece, but they really know that they're all just people trying to break free from Strahd's grips. They all have that in common, so it works really well. But otherwise, it's just a very dirty, grungy, gory game. Yeah, I think the idea that, you know, with Shadow Demon Lord, I think it's the idea is you level up every time. And after yep. the 10th adventure, the thing happens. So whatever you're having to deal with that thing, no matter what, it is it is impending. It is coming. There's no stopping the the assurance of that. And uh, but you're trying to get, I, I assume, up to a position where you can maybe challenge the Demon Lord. Is that the yeah, idea? That's basically, yeah. And that's exactly how I ran um, Curse of Strata. Basically, I had them start out in that little town of Barovia. They did the Hell House and they ran out and kind of did some different things, but they were actually people of that village instead of being sucked into Ravenloft. So they already knew Strahd was like really old. So you're saying you use, you didn't necessarily go to that 10, we'll call it a 10-act structure, which it, that's not really what it is, but what you're just saying is you just use the Shadow of the Demon Lord rules, applied it to using the uh, industry. Yeah, ran... We still stuck with the 10, well, it's not 10 sessions, it's 10 adventures, I guess you would say. So, I mean, the whole game itself, I think was like 22, 23 sessions altogether. But each time they went out and they did something to help gain power or learn about Strahd or find one of the relics or whatever was an adventure in itself. <clears throat> so, because what I'm thinking, I've, I kind of learned from like Conan uh, when I ran it and the i because i ran both the uh i ran on my own using um a different system but anyway 
But the idea is that if you do things that are episodic, where if you can keep it down to one session, it's not always easy, but boy, it seems like that's a lot more, a lot help. It's very helpful, especially if you have fluctuations within your group. Yes, big time. Yep. But I think the idea is if you can, it, I think that makes it much simpler to deal with than some large structure where somebody could be gone for two or three weeks and then come back and then, you know, and have all sorts of mayhem where at least with the Child of the Demon Lord, it's, it's, the adventures are shorter, but they combine to, to something longer. Yep, that's exactly right. And each adventure, I guess, they level basically every other session is each one was sort of split in, instead of each adventure being like a one shot, it was split into half. So a little bit longer as they went through the Hell House, for example, and that took two sessions and then they came back and gained a level. And uh, then they delivered, they went to the gypsy encampment. That was basically two sessions and back. So I basically kind of split, I got rid of the whole map because they traveled to different places that really should have taken a lot longer, but I was just like, yeah, you're there in a day. <laughs> basically each adventure was two sessions so it was grouped into a nice small little compact thing they got the information they needed got the story that they needed made it back to barovia did whatever it was they were going to do and set out again for the next part because they were building getting the relics basically building the stuff to build themselves up to confront strad so, yeah i think uh yeah when i played the curse of strad we never made it i i think the gm flaked out is what happened but it was, but it seemed actually to be a fairly reasonably, at least what I saw, a fairly reasonable module or adventure. That one, they actually, they did that one really well, by far. That's one I've came across that Wizards did. And it's not, I guess the Smiths of Ravenloft suck you in regardless. So it has a great starting point as the people yeah. Ravenloft. And it's, once they get into Ravenloft, it's an open sandbox. They just constantly are being harassed by Strahd or his minions. So they build this grudge up against them and they realize how depressed and how ruined this place is. If they want to be bad people, they get corrupted because of the Ravenloft itself and they can sort of basically just lose their characters out of corruption or else die. So they're sort of the players themselves, not the characters, the players are sort of pushed to not necessarily be heroic, but to really want to be able to kill Stroud so they can either take his place or get free again. So there's an actually a driving thing for the players and the characters. So why did you decide to switch system mining just run as 5e? Shadow Demon Lord's better. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least it's, it's, the systems are, are fairly compatible. My my problem is I'll I'll take a game system like a you know whatever and I'll just say, you know, this would be great with a completely different game system and I'll <laughs> go through all that trouble. I'm like, I don't know that I ever made it any better, but it just the stupid thing I got to do. It's just like, okay. Yeah. So Demon Lord has really good rules for insanity and corruption and basically just the deterioration of your character, which fit perfect with the horrors of Ravenloft. I mean, it's really a shame that he doesn't have the rights for it because they fit together so much better than a high fantasy D&D feel. The characters are not, they get cool powers, but they're never overpowered. I mean, yeah, and I think that's the problem with the, I think especially with 5e um, and well, I shouldn't say with 5e. I, I imagine 3.5 onward or 3.0 onward is that the characters become more, they're actually kind of more like superheroes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard to get that same sort of level of threat when, you know, you're able to take on certain things without, without even batting an eye. Where in the older systems, like, no, you're going to die. 
you know, you're always going to be wary of a giant or you're always be wary of whatever. It's just like for now, it's just like, well, I know I can take five hits from this guy before I have to worry about it. And I'm sure I can deal X amount of damage. And, you know, where yeah. I think that's where it's hard to to, to feel because your character is really and also with those. Um, and I don't I'm not saying it's wrong, but, you know, I think also having those multiple multiple saving throws to avoid actual death also helps to um eliminate you know threat to your character and i think that also kind of undermines any ability to to run a horror game with 5e yeah chandler yeah. more does it really well plus they have like it only uses the d20 and d6s so like for example when you do damage it's going to be x amount of d6s but your health itself i mean your average character has maybe 25 to 30 hit points so and when you're dealing with things that do four or five d6 damage one or two hits and you're really <laughs> but you have cool abilities they take cool abilities that 5e has but they just don't make it so it, it balances better i guess you want to say i mean you get really cool abilities but you get one use of it and it better work because otherwise you're screwed right it's a lot well, more strategic in that sense yeah i think my failure was it was on like a bundle of holding or humble bundle or something at one time i should have i should have bought into it i never did what i want what i really want is i don't want to run it because i'm not necessarily but i really love for somebody now to run you know my friends <laughs> run it and he playing it well, i'll let you know i always i do a lot of online one shots so yeah well, uh, yeah it'd be cool I, I my online time my time just kind of jacked up but um you know feeling. all right well i'll let you go finally i may i may just throw this on as an extra we'll see okay sounds good hey all it's been a crazy week with the starting of zine quest 3 i realize that most of my listeners are part of the rpg zines facebook group but if you aren't you should be I do want to bring up something Matt Forbeck said to me that reset my brain, and I feel the need to share it with you. This is not part of the interview, but this occurred during the first few minutes when we were just chatting. I mentioned that I had a project that I wrote because I was unable to find anybody willing to do the writing. I said I wrote it even though I'm not a writer, and he quickly retorted by saying, if you're writing, you are a writer. Let's be clear, Matt Forbeck has never read anything I've written, ever. While such a statement may seem cliche, and maybe it is cliche, it made me stop to reassess how I talk about that aspect of myself. I'm publishing a book that contains approximately 28,000 words. My writing may not be the best, but I did write it. No matter how slow, inefficient, and painful writing is to me, I still wrote it. I can say I'm a writer. I may not lead with that in conversation. I will never brag about it. But from this moment, I absolutely refuse to ever state the words, I am not a writer. Take a moment to consider what you tell others that you are not. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe your attitude towards an aspect of your life is unredeemably condescending. We all have a lot of garbage that clutters our head. We need to throw it out as soon as we see it rather than putting it in our pockets to carry around with us. Well, that is enough nickel philosophy for this week. Until next week, dear friends.